Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Yeah, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. So um, growing up in the church should be a blessing, right? Yeah, and I think for many of us, it has been a blessing. We, we grow up with, with a family of, of in the faith, fa- parents and family members who know and love Jesus and teach us what that means to know and love Jesus. For some people, though, the experience isn't that fantastic. Um, some people, when they grow up in the church, they, they grow up in families where it's far more about self-righteous legalism than it is about the forgiving grace of God. Some people, when they, uh, when they grow up in this kind of an environment, they, they grow up believing that everything about the Christian faith is just a bunch of rule-keeping. This can even happen in, in good homes, though, too, for kids who grow up and, and as they, they have a good home, they're in a good church, and yet, yet they still, the way that they're learning, and at least what they're taking in, is, is coming across more like a bunch of rule-keeping, like God is this scorekeeper in the sky who is taking track of how many fouls you have or how many yellow cards you have, and if there's too many, you're out of here. They don't understand the forgiving grace of God. So they end up trying to earn God's favor by doing God's, or by doing good things or living moral lives, by trying to earn his love, not understanding that it's already theirs. When when we're like this, when we're in this kind of state, when our minds and our hearts are in this way, we we imagine that there's there's lines that we can't cross. But then we end up finding ourselves crossing them. And then we go to God in prayer and and we confess and we ask for his forgiveness. And and then we end up even making deals with God. God, if you just give me another chance, I won't do it again. And I won't cross that line. And then you do it again. And you think that God is done with you. I imagine a number of us have been there. I know I have been. And it's not, it's a, it's a, a lack of understanding of grace. It's a lack of understanding of the gospel. But is there a line, is the question. Is there a line that can't be crossed? Is there a sin that is unforgivable? Or can we just willfully keep on sinning and not worry because God's grace is greater than all our sin? Can we just move forward in, in whatever selfish sin that we feel like running into and not worry about it because, oh, you know, there was that time back in summer camp that I prayed a prayer and God is on the hook now to save me. What's the answer? Well, Jesus brings this up in today's passage as the religious leaders of his day come to him and they don't like what he's been doing and so they accuse him of actually being teammates with Satan. They say that Jesus, he works by Beelzebul. 
But in the end, you see that Jesus actually flips the script on them. So the big idea for today is that we all deserve condemnation, but we can all receive restoration through Jesus. There's two points. Your words matter, and your repentance is required. This is quite a long passage that we're going to go through here, but it all ties together, and so I hope to show that. So starting Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil i tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned it's the word of the lord So point one, your words matter. Matthew starts this section with a scene where Jesus casts a demon out of a man, but Matthew just briefly touches on this. He doesn't go into a lot of detail about who this man was or where the demons went or anything like that. He just gives a brief explanation of this because the main point of this passage is actually the conversation that comes after it. So the people again are amazed at Jesus and they're starting to buzz about him being the son of David, the coming king, the one that they've been waiting for. But the Pharisees aren't convinced. They're always skeptical. No matter what Jesus does, no matter how many things, how many evidences of who he is he gives, they just will not believe him. And so instead they accuse him of working with Satan. Jesus is challenging their authority far too much. He can't be, he can't be of God 
of God if he's not with us, they think. And so he must be with Satan. Must be a trick, they're thinking. So Jesus challenges them right back and says, basically, Do you, are you guys hearing your argument? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan want to divide against his own kingdom? It's not going to survive that way. We look at the world, we look at nations. Jesus uses these examples. Houses won't stand, nations won't stand. You think about uh, wars that, are, that happen, and if, if a nation is at war within itself, it's not going to be very successful out on the battlefield. They've got to straighten out their own house before they go out and try to win a battle of some kind. In the military, you can't be divided against your fellow soldiers or else you're going to face a court martial. It's serious stuff to be divided against your own team this way, against your own nation. You aren't going to achieve victory if your team is divided. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Therefore, if Satan expects to have victory, his forces as well, his forces must be united in the mission, not casting each other out, trying to defeat each other. So this charge that the Pharisees are bringing against Jesus just doesn't really add up. Then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and he says, if he's doing these things by the Spirit of God, well, that means that he's from God and that everything that he's been saying about the kingdom of God being at hand through him is true. His driving out of demons at will is actually not working with Satan, but it's an all-out assault against Satan. Jesus has come to bring his kingdom to defeat Satan's kingdom. So when he drives out these demons, step by step, he is taking advances into Satan's kingdom. And Satan doesn't have the power to stop it. Jesus is attacking him, not working with him. Jesus is exerting his authority over all the earth, bringing the kingdom of God to bear on it, and Satan can't stop it. Because through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has bound Satan. So that's where Jesus talks about, the, you can't plunder a man's house unless you first bind the strong man. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus, after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he withstood the temptation, not giving in the way everyone else before him had, the way each one of us has given in to temptation. Jesus doesn't give in to temptation. And Jesus continues to live the perfect life, die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, rise to new life, and now Satan's bound. Now that doesn't mean that Satan is completely imprisoned and and prevented from having any effect on the world, but Satan is restrained. So, and he's restrained so that the advance of the kingdom can continue, and it has been continuing through the last 2,000 years. Jesus is plundering the devil's house, saving people who were doomed because of their sin. How is this happening? By the Holy Spirit through the church. And that's through the church gathered and the church scattered. So we gather to worship, but then we scatter into our lives, into our houses, into our neighborhoods. 
Missionaries scatter across the globe bringing the message. And this is how Jesus is plundering Satan's house. And you might look at the world around you and go, well, you know, how can you say that? Because, I mean, you, I look at the world around me and I see that Christianity is in decline. Well, in reality, around the globe, Christianity is expanding like never before, exponentially. It actually, the increase of Christianity happens more and more every year. LifeWay Research did... Um, did an uh, investigation into this and put together some stats, and they, they actually say that evangelical Christianity right now globally is growing five times faster than atheism. There's less atheists in the world now than there were in 1970. So while we see in our, in our immediate context of North America, yeah, we see the church in decline, we see Christianity being kind of pushed to the margins, globally... It's a different story, a far different story. Where in the, in the early 1900s, over 50% of Christians worldwide lived in Europe. Now that number is only under, just under 20%. Majority of Christians now are in the global south, Africa, Asia, South America. God's kingdom is expanding. Satan is restrained, the gospel is going forth, and he can't stop it. So Jesus is making it clear to the Pharisees that what they are seeing him do is evidence that he is from God, and to call it otherwise deserves condemnation. So everyone note here, when we get to the next few verses where Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin, this is the context. You have a group of people who are accusing Jesus of being teammates with Satan himself, even though all other evidence displays otherwise. So when Jesus says that whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come, he is speaking to a consistent, repeated, unrepentant stance against Jesus, and therefore also against God's kingdom. So let me repeat that. The unforgivable sin is a consistent, repeated, unrepentant stance that is against Jesus and therefore against God's kingdom. So you can't uh, commit the unforgivable, unforgivable sin by mistake. You can't for commit the unforgivable sin um, when, when you have a tenderness towards God and a desire to repent and you are going back to him. That's not the heart of somebody who's committing the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is somebody who's explaining or displaying an attitude and actions like the Pharisees who are calling Jesus a teammate of Satan and attributing all the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And they're doing that repeatedly and unrepentantly. Again, this can't be done by mistake. There are no... Uh, banana peels of unforgivable sin out there that you can just slip on and go, oops, too bad for me. It's a persistent posture of the heart that is bent against Jesus. To prove my point, the next verses, 
Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. See, these Pharisees who were charging Jesus with this had wicked intentions in what they were saying about Jesus. And they were dead set against him. Therefore, they were also dead set against God's kingdom. Not just in their words either, but also in their hearts. Their words spoke what they did because that's where their hearts were. Out of the abundance of their hearts, they called Jesus a partner with Satan. And then the last verse, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because your words show your heart. And as human beings, we, we regularly set our hearts on uh, things other than Jesus. We regularly set our hearts on lower things rather than on higher things. Adam and Eve did this. In the garden, they set their heart on, on a, a lie that the serpent told them rather than the truth that God gave them. And so they fell. Instead of setting their hearts higher, they set them lower. Men and women do this in our day, too, in various things. Men and women do this when they look at pornography. Instead of setting their hearts on higher things for their satisfaction, they set them on lower things. Men and people do this when they abuse drugs and alcohol. They're looking for relief from the stress that they might have or the depression that they're feeling or whatever's going on in their life. They're thinking that this will give me the relief I need. And instead of setting their hearts on the higher things, they're setting their hearts on the lower things. Setting our hearts or our hopes on lesser things will always provide a lesser result. We need to have our hearts set on Christ. We need to have our hearts set on Christ. Running to these other things that, that lie about being our saviors. They're, they're false saviors, these things. We need to be running to Christ. And that means repenting of our sin and running towards him. Only by setting your heart on Jesus, the true Savior, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to live for him, will you receive the highest, the highest reward. And that is forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Our words matter. Romans 10, verses 9 to 13 says this, because if you confess your sins, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Look at all those, those verbs that talk about our words. Confessing, calling, confessing, calling, 
The words that we have show our hearts. And when our hearts are in the right place, we will repent. And our repentance is required. So continuing in this passage, Matthew 12, verses 38 to 45, when some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, or then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We just celebrated that, right? Happy Easter. He is risen. And continuing, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When we look at these verses, uh, Jesus uses this word generation. And generation can be used in two different ways, uh, or at least two different ways. The first one is to talk about an age or a... a yeah, uh, an age range of people. So you've got the boomers, you've got Gen X, you've got the millennials, and then you have Gen Z, right? This is how we talk about the different generations of our day. Then the second way, though, is looks more at the attitude of a people. And that's the way that Jesus is looking at it here. That's how he's talking about the Pharisees. People who hold the view of the, of the Pharisees too. People whose hearts are far from God and refuse to repent. He uses the example of Jonah, and the Ninevites repented at Jonah's preaching. Think about this. You've got Jonah, the prophet, called to go to Nineveh, and he tries to run away from God, run away from his responsibility, because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He's heard of what they're like, and he doesn't want to go there. He thinks they deserve judgment. So he disobeys God, runs away, gets swallowed up by a fish. After three days in that fish, uh, if you read the book of Jonah, he, he has this song or this, this, basically this song of repentance that says that he's going to follow God, he's going to obey God and go. So the fish spits him out on land, he goes to Nineveh, preaches to the people, and then he goes outside the city and waits, and he's like, all right, God, bring the fire. He is expecting Nineveh to be wiped out the way Sodom and Gomorrah was. But the people repented. It says that the king of the city actually demanded that everybody in the city, even the animals, wear sackcloth and ashes to repent of their sin and to turn to God. And Jonah hates it. So imagine when Jonah, it, it, he doesn't really care about the people of Nineveh, so he goes there and preaches. How passionate was his preaching? It was probably like, hey guys, you should probably repent or something, you know, that God is going to kill you if you don't. So, all right, see you later. And he walks away, right? That's probably about the kind of passion, because he didn't care if they turned or not. And yet they turned. 
So here, this generation that Jesus is talking to, you've got these Pharisees, they've got God in the flesh in front of them, speaking to them face to face, teaching as someone who has actual authority over these scriptures, doing miracles, healing people, casting out demons, speaking to a storm and calming it. And they come to Jesus and go, can you just give us a sign? Just tell us who you are. And he says, a wicked and adulterous generation wants a sign. But I'll give you one. I'll give you the same one that Jonah gave. All raised from the dead after three days. That's all I'll give you. And Jesus talks about even the pagan queen of Sheba knew wisdom when she saw it and she came to learn from Solomon. But you guys, everything I've done and you guys still won't believe. There are a lot of people who think that signs are the answer or that miracles are the answer and that's what we need. I have once had a dear old saint tell me this. We were talking about church and, and she loved the church. Don't get me wrong. And she said to me, she said, you know what the problem is? There aren't enough miracles in church these days. And if we had more miracles, if there were healings, if people spoke in tongues, these amazing things would happen and more people would come. More people would be saved. And I just go, really? I mean, people like signs and wonders, so people would come to look at the show. Jesus had that too. When Jesus performed all his signs and wonders, he had massive crowds that followed him, but when he challenged them, a lot of them left. See, what we actually need is to examine ourselves in light of Christ and under the magnifying glass of his word. Examine ourselves. Have you ever looked in one of those mirrors, um, like a makeup mirror? Um, it, it magnifies your face like a zillion times. And you put your face close to it, and it's blurry from a distance, but you get close, and it's like, whoa. All of a sudden, you're looking up your nose and counting every nose hair and whatever else is up there. It's not a pretty sight when you get that close, and you, you can find out what all the imperfections are, and this is what cosmeticians like to do, and they look at people, and they tell you to do that too. If you want to pluck or poke a zit, whatever, this is where you should look. But it's not pretty when you get that close and you see all the gunk that can be there. But this is what we need to do with our lives too. God's word is like this exposing ourselves, looking at ourselves, looking at the state of our own hearts in light of Christ, in light of his word, seeing the junk that's there, not ignoring it, and then repenting of it, confessing it to Christ, and knowing that when we are clothed in him, that we are forgiven. See, it's a grace that God gives us to expose to us our faults and our sins. It's an act of his grace. But it's humbling. But this is what we need. We need to be going to Christ in a humble spirit, going, Jesus, teach me. Teach me by your spirit, through your word, how to live my life for you. 
Teach me by your spirit, through your word, how to use my wealth for you. Teach me by your spirit, through your word, how to use my sexuality for you. Teach me by your spirit, through your word, how to lead my family for your glory. We need to bow to him in every area of our lives and then live under his gracious forgiveness. All of this knowledge of Jesus, the gift of scripture, the forgiveness of our sins is by the grace of God. The fact that he exposes our sins and imperfection is an act of his grace. And the gospel is all about God's grace. It was by God's grace that you are saved, and it's by God's grace that you are kept. It's not by your works. Do we do good works? Yes. Does he lead us to good works? Yes. All by his grace. And the recipients of that grace know that it's grace, and we strive to live for Jesus because of that grace. His grace, indeed, is greater than all our sin. So what does that mean? Do we now take advantage of that grace and just move forward with our selfish desires, saying, thanks, God, now I'm going to do what I want? No. Because that doesn't show the heart of somebody who actually has been affected by that grace. That's a heart that needs to be changed by his grace. The last few verses of this whole passage tie back to the first one where Jesus casts out that demon. So verses 43 to 45, Matthew writes, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. That last sentence is the key to these verses. This generation that Jesus is speaking to, these people that are so defiant against him and against who he says he is and against Jesus attacking him, no matter what signs he gives them or how many demons he casts out, they are doomed to just grow worse and worse than they were before because even though these demons are being cast out, like we're talking about the generation as a whole, they're remaining empty. They aren't submitting to Christ. They aren't submitting to his spirit. And so what do they end up doing? They end up arresting him, mocking him, crucifying him. So friends, listen, the, the, the big idea here today, we, we all deserve condemnation. When we, when we go under that microscope and we look at ourselves, we can all find things that deserve condemnation. But through Christ, 
through the gracious work of his spirit in our hearts, we all receive restoration. So confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And if you've never done so, if you've never done that and confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, make today the day. Because as Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and this passage, which has so much in it, and, and we, can, we can get dragged into uh, taking verses out of context and all those things. So, Lord, I thank you that we can study it together, look at it in context, and see that you are gracious and good, and that it's by your spirit that we can be saved. And it's also gracious and good of you to reveal to us the, the, the dirt in our own lives. Lord, it's an act of your grace to be able to see that so that we can know the depth of our sinfulness. Because when we see how great our sinfulness is, Lord, it just makes you greater. What a great Savior, savior you are, Lord Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you bless us as we continue to worship you. Lord, work on our hearts. Be that magnifying glass that we need. And lead us to repentance and faith in you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.